Hey, thank you for tuning in to the Relove Podcast. This is Pastor Rico. Our hope is that today's message adds life and power to your journey as you grow. Thanks for joining us. We're going to start in Judges chapter 7 today. So we're, we're moving on to the next chapter, chapter 7. We're going to read the first, uh, or, uh, uh, let me see, 7, 1 through 8, okay? Uh, so beginning in verse 1, it says, Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. So what's happening here is God just told Gideon that he has an army that's too large. And so he said, find out who's scared, find out who's afraid, and send them back. And there were 10,000 people that got sent back, okay? Uh, Going on to verse 5, it says, So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as dogs lap from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that left, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Pray with me as we prepare to hear a message entitled, Fixed Before the Fight. God, open our hearts. As we open your word today, we are ready to receive. In your name I pray, amen and amen. At some point in your preparation process for the purpose God is calling you to, uh, God will confront your confusion. At at, at some point in your journey, you're going to realize, I'm not too clear on certain things, God, I'm going to need some help. Or you may not recognize that. Whether you do or you don't, God is going to set you straight. It may be after you've been called, but it'll definitely be before the battle. And that's how it was for Gideon. He's, we, we have our, our warrior who has now been willing to step out of the wine press. And you guys know over the last few weeks, we've been journeying through the process God took Gideon through to get him out of the wine press, which represented his place of depression, his place of timidity, his place of fear. Uh, and, and now it's just before the battle, but God still has some things he needs to do to prepare our warrior Gideon. And those things have to do with three different things. God is working on Gideon's nouns. Gideon's nouns. What is a noun? In English grammar, we call a noun a word that describes a person, a place, or a thing. A person, a place, or a thing. These are nouns. And we're going to see through this passage of Scripture how God wants to correct Gideon's understanding of his person, his place, and the things. My father is somebody who is really, really big on respect. In fact, for a large majority of my life, I wasn't sure if I should call him dad or Uncle Rick. 
because Uncle Rick is who everyone called him. Whether you were family or not, you had two choices. It was Uncle Rick or Mr. Reese. And Mr. Reese was, was one that I heard quite often from a lot of the people that he worked with and his company uh, and, and, and people who were acquaintances of him. But the closer people, like family, used to call him Uncle Rick. And my dad was really big on respect. And I remember him always teaching me, Mio, nobody's going to disrespect you if you don't disrespect them. So as part of my father teaching me how to be respected, he taught me how to be respectable. My dad was big on what he was called. Um, a very approachable man, nonetheless, and oftentimes people called him Uncle Rick out of reasons of endearment. My dad really taught me a lot about how people perceive me and the titles they give me. And I remember very clearly it was the seventh grade and I went to camp. It was called Lift Camp, Lifestyle Improvement for Teens, L-I-F-T. Uh, and so I remember very clearly one of these activities we played, there were like 50 kids. We were all in the lodge space. We were sitting uh, cross-legged in a giant circle. And I remember the camp instructor was trying to help us understand and remember each other's names. Because 50 kids was a lot of names to remember. And so we played this game where you had to introduce who you were by identifying an animal whose name began with the same letter as your name. So you can think of, you know, uh, Sammy Snake, or you can think of um, Helen Hippopotamus, or whatever you could think of. For me, it was Rico Rhino. And I remember I loved Rico Rhino because everyone laughed when I said it. I don't know why, but I made them laugh, and I, I enjoyed that. And so throughout the rest of the four-day camp, everyone would say, Rico Rhino, there goes Rico Rhino. And I don't know if you know or you have memories or you have kids. On the end of your camp day, your last day, it might be a hat, it might be a, a piece of paper, a program, it might be a little bandana, something. You like to write the names, like send a little message for the summer, almost like a yearbook. We used to do that in camp, and you would write. And I remember people writing, Rico Rhino, Rico Rhino, Rico Rhino. My dad picked me up from camp, and he looked at, 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 at my booklet that had Rico Rhino written in it, and he said, why are they calling you Rico Rhino? Well, my dad was about to, you know, find out, you know what, you know, calm down, Dad, it ain't that serious. We just played this game, uh, and, and, and my nickname at camp was Rico Rhino. And he said, oh, 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 okay, all right. Well, that's okay, nicknames are okay. But listen to what he said, he said, Mill, make sure people call you your name, not something else. He said, because there's only two people on earth that have the right to give you a name, and that's me and your mother, and we named you Rico. I don't know how many of you know that there's only one person who can give you your name, and that's God. There's only one person who gets to determine what you've been called. That's your creator. There's only one person who gets to form and identify your identity, and that is God himself. We are studying the story of a man who's been given a new identity. If you realize in the opening line of this passage that we've read in verse one, it says, early in the morning, Jerubel. And then it says in parentheses, this is Gideon. Whatever version of the scripture you are reading this from, you're gonna see some form of parentheses where Samuel, the author of this book, wants to make sure that you understand that this is Gideon. 
he's been given a new name, Jerubbaal. Now, what does Jerubbaal mean? Jerubbaal is actually a, a, a means the Baal fighter. That's what we understand from Scripture here. Now, you might want to go back a couple weeks. Uh, Pastor McBride preached a sermon a few weeks ago, and it was called Moving from Revelation to Reality. And in that sermon, he took us through the story of this first preliminary battle that took place where Gideon had to follow the instructions of God, and Gideon was the one who was actually responsible for tearing down the idol of Baal in the city. He went to his father's place, and the angry townspeople came beating on the door. Let us in, let us in. The door of his father's house, Joash. His father's name is Joash. And they're saying, give us, give us Gideon. He's the one responsible for tearing down our idol. And his father responded and said, hey, if Baal is the God that you say he is, then let Baal deal with Gideon. If Baal is who you worship and he's worthy of your worship, let him worry about Gideon. And we know that Baal may be a God that has eyes but cannot see. Baal may be a, a God that has ears but cannot hear, a mouth but cannot speak. He may have arms and hands but cannot reach. So we know that the fact that Gideon made it to chapter 7 tells us that Baal didn't touch Gideon. So now you have to understand what the people are seeing in Gideon. When Gideon steps into a place, Gideon is no longer perceived as the dude in the wine press. He's no longer perceived as the worrisome weakling. No, he's now perceived as a warrior. Look how he bossed up on them, knocked down their idol, and that Baal God didn't do nothing. Because Gideon was still present. Gideon was still around. Gideon's presence in people's lives represented a threat to the enemy. We're talking about a warrior here. Gideon's presence represented a threat to the enemy. How many of you can say that when I'm present, the enemy trembles? Because of my faith, people who mean me and my family no good are afraid. This is how people saw Gideon. You have to understand, the entire perspective has changed. Gideon's new name is Jerubbaal. This is not the chapter 6 Gideon we've been talking about in the wine press. This is chapter 7 Gideon. I wish I could go back in that time and tell Gideon, in that time between chapter 6 and chapter 7, about chapter seven. Gideon, I know you don't know it yet, but you're gonna knock down this idol and the people are gonna start respecting you. Gideon, I know you're scared in your wine press right now and you're worried, but I want you to know you're about to take this army over with just 300 people. Gideon, I, I, I know you don't realize it yet, but where you are now in chapter six, in, in, in the place of difficulty, where you feel yourself being challenged now in chapter six, where you feel weak in chapter six is preparing you for chapter seven. This is not the chapter six Gideon, this is chapter seven Gideon. And I'm here to tell you today that you don't need to be chapter six Syria. You don't need to be chapter six Rachel. Chapter six Marilyn, you are chapter seven now. Here's my first point and it's very simple. Person, place, thing, right? Person, you are not the person you used to be. 
you are not the person you used to be. People recognize this about Gideon. Gideon still needed to recognize this about Gideon. Yeah, Gideon knows he'd been called out of the wine press. He finally had the courage to conjure up an army of 32,000 people, the scripture says. Nevertheless, we still see that God found that Gideon was still confused about his identity. God gave him a new name. What is your new name? What is your chapter seven story? I know chapter six was rough because in chapter six, you were weak. But in chapter seven, you're a warrior. I know chapter six was rough. In chapter six, you were humiliated. You were hiding. In chapter seven, you're a hero. And I know in chapter six, you were afraid. In chapter seven, you're fierce. I know that in chapter six, you were meek. But in chapter seven, you're mighty. I know that in chapter six, you felt like a coward, but in chapter seven, you are courageous. What chapter six battle brought you to chapter seven? You, what did you go through? What are you going through now? If you're not in your chapter seven, understand that your six is leading you to your seven. Understand that your battle in chapter six is preparing you for your war in chapter seven. You are not the person you used to be. When God calls you out of the wine press, he often calls you something different, a different name, a different person. Like, God, would you say who? Who? Who you call? What? That's not my, well, that's your name now. We saw that with Jacob and with Israel. We see this with Gideon and Jeroboam. When God fixes you to fight, he reminds you of who you are. Because listen, one thing you cannot be afford, one thing you cannot afford to be confused about when God is fixing you to fight is your identity. Because your identity determines who you're fighting for. Your identity determines why you're in the war. Your identity determines your purpose. Your identity determines the reason you get back up when you fall down. Because it doesn't matter who you think you are or who you've been told you are, you are who God says you are. Because there's only one person on earth who can give you your name, and that is God, the one who created you. You're not the person you used to be. And it's so easy for us to look past our chapter six. But I want to remind you, and I know some things that you went through in the past were hard. I know some of the things that you experienced were difficult, but I'm here to remind you that everything you experienced in chapter six was designed to prepare you for chapter seven. So if you find yourself entering into your chapter seven right now and you don't feel prepared, look back at what God brought you through. Look back at your wine press. Look back at your threshing floor. Remember where God has brought you from. If I were God, I think I would definitely be frustrated working with us. Because working with us, it's almost as if God has to start over with us every single day. Working with humans must be difficult, God, I know it is. It reminds me of this time I just recently when I was 
in Michigan visiting. My uh, niece has a brand newborn son. Well, he's, he's about six months right now. But he's in a place where he's moving building blocks. Well, he's not six months. He's actually a little, he's, he's walking now. So he's all over a year, I guess. I don't know. I ain't got no kids. So you can tell I don't really know the age and no babies. <laughs> I'm out here thinking like, no, he ain't no six months. He's, he's, he's moving around. And he does this thing where he likes to play with blocks. And so I was laying on the floor with him playing blocks and we were stacking blocks. And I loved it because I would put one block and then he would get a block and he would, you know, put it there. And then I would put a block and then he would put a block. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like our mission is to build a tower. So we're going to build it as tall as we can. So he'd put a block and then I'd put a block. And then he would go over there, move around and crawl around and then mess around over here. He would get distracted. And then he would come back to the blocks game that we were playing. But instead of putting a new block on the tower we're trying to build, he would start all over and get a different block and put it next to, and that little tower didn't mean nothing to him. And I was getting frustrated with my little nephew, like, can we finish the job? Like, as soon as these blocks are done, I want to put these blocks away so that we can be done. Build the tower and let's get it over with. But he didn't come back to the tower that was built. He kept wanting to build a new tower and put a new block down. And this is how we are with God. I wonder, I wonder if God is sometimes just saying, hey, can you finish building the tower? Why did you forget about chapter six? Why are you starting over like you're in chapter six still? Why are you going back to your wine press? You're not the person you used to be. We're building something together. God is building something with you. So stop falling back and regressing from the things that God has helped you make progress for in your life. There's a project you have. God is working on you. You don't have to start at ground zero again. Put the block back on top and stop trying to start over. God is doing something with you in your life. And let me tell you something. There's a promise in Philippians chapter one that tells us about what God's intention is with this thing that he's building with us. It says, he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ. You're not who you used to be, family. You are not the person you used to be. So what is a noun? It's a person uh, or a, okay. So let's move on to our second part, which is a place. A place in verse one, bring it back to verse one. In verse one, it says, Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. This, I want to provide some context for you because this is the perfect camp out location. And we may not be able to see all of this from just this passage of scripture, but through extra biblical resources and archaeology and topography and, 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 and other studies that have been done of the land in that place today, there's things that we understand about where Gideon had them camped out that helps us understand it's actually a pretty good, it seems to be a pretty good place for an army to camp out. So again, it's called the spring of Herod, which means it's marked by bubbling, life-giving water, 
which means that the army and the men could hydrate with that water. But because of the bubbling water, there was also fertile soil, and that soil produced vegetation that to this day, locals will go and pick berries, and, and, and there's a lot of animals in this location because this is a very life-giving location. What we, what we know about this place is that it was elevated on the side of Mount Geboa. Okay, but you have to understand that the scripture says the Midianites were in the valley. So Gideon led the Israelites, his army, up onto a mountain, onto the side of the mountain. They're camped out where now they have a vantage point of the enemy. The enemy that they can see is down in the valley so they can watch the enemy and know when they move, know when something weird is happening. They can keep their eyes on the enemy. This is the perfect place for an army to camp out, except that it's not. And it's not the perfect place because it's called the spring of Herod. The Hebrew word harad, which is what Herod is named after, means to tremble. They're actually camped out on a location that's called fear. The same thing that God pulled out of Gideon in chapter 6 Gideon leads his army right back to in chapter 7. Fear. Gideon took his people to a place of fear. The same spring that Saul fled to when Samuel went and told him that God was going to give him to the enemy, this is the same location where Saul and his sons died. This place was called trembling. This place was called fear. It was marked by insecurity, by timidity. It was this place that Gideon took that was the perfect place for his army to fight from fear. Now you may ask me, well, well, well Pastor Rico, what about the vantage point? What about the fact that they could see the enemy really well from where they were? Yes, listen, position matters. I'm here to tell you that when you're fighting, position matters. The, the, the people that, that God has entrusted to you camp out where you do. L listen to what I'm saying. God told Gideon he was going to lead an army into battle. Gideon went and got that army. That army is following Gideon. Gideon is their leader. Where Gideon led them is where they camped out. If Gideon took them to a place called victory his army would have followed them to a place called victory. Family, where you camp out determines where the people who follow you do as well. Where are you camping out? Where are you setting up camp? Where are you pitching your tent? Is it in, in, in your places of discouragement? Is it in your, 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 your anger and your animosity? Is it in those places that you left back in chapter 6? but you keep seeing the same indicators of your own behavior through your children because you camped out there? Those who follow you camp out where you do. Position matters. It's my second point, family. You are not the person you used to be, but guess what? You don't need to go to the places you used to go. Not only are you not the person you used to be, you also have no business going back to the places you used to go. 
When you've been changed, when you feel the hand of God on your life, when you know you are a different person, how dare you return to the thing that God pulled you out of? If you, know, if you knew better, you do better. That's what we say. If you knew better, you do better. One more step, family. If you know better, you'd go better. You'd go to better places. You would go to, to better places. You would go to better places. Your position matters. If you're standing in the wrong place, the enemy will appear bigger than it really is. And so while it may seem like having a good vision or vantage point over the enemy, you have to understand what's happening here is that they're elevated. They can see the entire Midianite army. It's actually the Midianites, the Amalekites, and a couple other Eastern groups that gathered together. It doesn't say in this scripture, but it says in, in chapter eight, when they count how many people died after the war was done, it actually ended up being a total of 135,000 soldiers that Gideon and his enemy and his army was fighting. 135,000. But what's interesting is that in this chapter and so far, we only see them described one way. We see so far that they're described as locusts. It says in chapter, in chapter 6 and in chapter 7 that there's so many of them they cannot be counted like the grains of sand. It said that the enemy was so many that they looked like locusts. They weren't innumerable. There was 135,000 of them. But because Gideon had his people posted up at a place of fear, what he saw looked like innumerable numbers of people. Sometimes your vantage point isn't always going to give you an advantage. The vantage point that they took was one that actually brought intimidation upon them. As they camped out in that place of fear, they could see how, do you know how big 135,000 people would look from a mountainside and you're looking? And you look back at your little 22,000 and you're like, we aren't going to make it. They're knocked down to 300 at this point. We have to go fight that. You have to understand that your position matters. The perspective from which you perceive the enemy impacts your perception of his power. So where are you when you're looking at the enemy? Are you alone in your places of solitude and your discouragement? Where are you when you're perceiving the power of the enemy? Or are you, are you gathered in community with your spiritual family and networks of support? Position matters. Why are we going back to those places that God took us out, took us out of? When you're not who you used to be, stop going to the places you used to go. Gideon took them to an environment of fear. Last August, right after the retreat, in fact, the next day, I had to fly out because I was officiating a wedding in North Carolina. Now, last week I told y'all that I checked two things when I get up in the morning. Well, right after my Bible, and I pray and, and, and fast and, you know, meditate and levitate and all that spiritual stuff, right? I told you I, te I checked two things, right? I get on my phone, and I look at what? The weather. And I'm looking specifically for something in the weather. Do you remember what it was? The humidity. The humidity. Because, I, listen, it'd be too hot for me to be big up here sweating all over you, just like today. Now, today's not as humid as it was last week, but let me tell you about North Carolina, though. 
let me tell you about North Carolina. So I'm even thinking ahead of time. I was like, all right, I know it's going to be humid there. I know it's going to be, it's a wedding I'm going to, right? I'm not trying to look a mess. I never met, you know, only one of the, I met the bride's family. I knew them, but I didn't know the other people. I don't want to be out here looking all crazy. So I remember packing a certain way, bringing certain materials, you know, things that, that, that I didn't have to worry about the wrinkles too much. And I remember even getting out of the plane and I went to the bathroom and I looked at what I was wearing. I was like, okay, I'm not so bad because I, I had ironed my shirt. I don't always iron when I, when I go, when I travel. I, in fact, I typically don't. But because I was going to be meeting people right off the airport, I was like, let me iron my clothes so I, I look kind of together. And I remember going even to the bathroom looking. I was like, all right, man, I'm not, not so bad. So I get out, I walk out the airport doors. I walk out the airport doors and I promise as soon as I look down, my whole shirt looked like it had been crumpled up in the bottom of my book bag and I just threw it on. And it was a mess and it was the humidity. It didn't matter how much I ironed, that humidity was going to wreck my shirt. Did you hear me? It didn't matter how much I ironed, that humidity was gonna wreck my shirt. It didn't matter what material I wore, that humidity was gonna wreck my shirt. It didn't matter the work I did to make it right because I was not in the correct environment to sustain my progress. We're talking about places, people. It does not matter the work you do when you keep going back to the place that made you have to fix what you just fixed in the first place. We fix it, God builds the tower, we go back and we knock it down. We fix it, God builds the tower, we go back to those places and we knock it down. And family, don't get me wrong, don't trivialize what I'm saying to think, oh, well, I don't have a problem with spaces like the bar. I don't have problems with spaces like the movie theater. I'm, I'm not talking just about physical spaces. It may, be a, it may be the bar. Perhaps you've been sober for six months and one night out with your friends messes all that up. That's an environment. But maybe it's a little deeper than that for you. Maybe it's more that you struggle with your idea and your self-perception as a result of the experiences you've had with your family. Perhaps you come from a family that expectations of you and your academic progress uh, has to do with the fact that your parents make a certain living. And so the pressure was put on you to be someone who did a certain thing. So you ended up going and failing in that degree that you never wanted in the first place. So now you struggle with your own value. See, but then when you met God and God showed you that you're not who you used to be and the fact that he brought you out of a place where you're a new person now, then you realize, hey, my self-value, who I am, is not determined by how much money I make. My self-value is not determined by the degree I have. It's determined by the one who made my name, by the one who calls me. So now I no longer spend excess time with my family because my family and the familial habits and parts of my culture that have damaged my idea of myself is a place that I keep returning to, knocking down the building blocks that God is building in my life. Yes, family, I'm talking about boundaries with your family. It doesn't have to be a physical place. That wasn't real enough for you. I got more if you need it. If you want, we can talk about some of us who perhaps in our moments of loneliness and solitude keep finding ourselves in the bed of our baby mama. Because it serves a need that we have in that time, but we're also struggling with our feelings of failure as a father. 
Yet we find ourselves in the place where the greatest source of that shame continues to grow and to thrive in our lives. But we keep going back to the place that feeds us in the moment, missing the miracle that God has for the lifetime because we return to the places that God pulled us out of. When you're not who you used to be, stop going to the places you used to go. He took them to a place called fear. A place called fear. What places are you going to, family, that do not support the efforts for the changes you're making in your life? Position also matters. We talk about position, I'm sorry. We talk about position, we talk about environment, we talk about place. But posture also matters. Posture matters. And many of you may not realize this, but I remember in my younger years as a kid, one of the primary places I gained my first sense of confidence was Taekwondo. I used to love Taekwondo from an early, early age. That was my first thing. I would make nunchucks out of every pencil and string I could find. I was, I was they didn't call me Kung Fu Panda just because I'm big. Listen, I was, I was out here. I am... I, I, was, I loved Taekwondo and I was dedicated. I loved it. Taekwondo, I still remember when we would, when we would prepare to, when we would prepare to, to, to fight, well, it wasn't, it wasn't fighting, it would just spar each other. We had the, the, the gear on and the headgear. I still remember one of the things that they taught us to do was to take our fighting stance. And so you would begin, um, and we had to learn Korean and how to do this. You begin understanding, you know, to the flag, Kyungnet to the to the flags we bow. You turn Sabunimke Kyungnet. That's to my instructor. I bow, and then the the, the referee would say, Chayet. That means ready. You put your hands like this, like Pathfinders. Kyungnet. Then you bow, and they say Chumbi. Chumbi is the Korean word for get ready. So when they say Chumbi, you take your fighting stance. Yes, that was smooth. I know y'all saw that. I know y'all saw. It. Out here looking like. I know you guys saw that. You saw how smooth that was? I pivoted on the ball of my left foot. You saw my right foot with my heel still up in the air. You know that was smooth. You know it was. It made it be a subtle motion. I don't be doing big stuff up here, but you can see that I, look, I still got it. Pivot on your left heel. Keep your right heel up because I'm right-handed. I had the ball of my, of my foot planted firmly on the ground so I can release for a kick. It gives you spring action here. You have your left hand right here to protect this jaw. You have your right hand here, elbows in to, to protect your, your ribs. That's your fighting stance. I remember doing a drill all the time with the instructors before they would ever let us suit up. Before we could ever put on our gear, we had to do a drill where we just did that. It's like, it's like some wax on, wax off stuff. Like, yo, I just want to fight now. I just want to kick. You taught us all this stuff, but we can't use it because our entire drill was just this. That was it. We would spend a whole class just doing this. But listen, every time we would do this, we would have instructors come around and they would point to where our knee was. Hey, look, your knee is completely front. It's completely straight in the front. If you get kicked in the knee, you're breaking your leg. Bend your knee. They would tell you, look at where your heel is facing. If your heel is facing this direction, your kick is gonna start from that point when you do your roundhouse. You're not gonna be able to do your kick in the right way. They would help us correct, correct our fighting stance before we ever got to fight. 
Because your posture matters. When we're talking about the places that you're in and where you're going, your posture matters. How you start your fight has everything to do with how you finish it. Some of you are starting standing tall when you should be starting on your knees. What is your posture for fighting? You have to choose your stance. You have to take a stand, make it be firm, because the way you stand has everything to do with how you fight. You're not the person you used to be. Stop going to the places you used to go. Person, place, and thing. We're moving on to our last point. And this is a short one. This is nice and simple. In, in, in verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. He's saying, hey, if I let you guys go with this army of 32,000, what I'm going to hear from your mouth is, hey, well, we almost had enough people. Look how good we did. If we win, it's going to be because we were strong. But I still got an issue with this. How many of you have maybe around the first or the 15th of the month, I don't know about when your money comes in, but sometimes the math don't be mathing. <laughs> and this is a particular point in time when God's math is not mathing. It's not making sense. Okay, God, we just said a couple minutes ago that the combination of all the enemies they're fighting is 135,000 people down in that valley. But Gideon, with his army, began at 32,000, which is still too vast of a disparity for it to be even close to being called fair. But then they knocked it down from 32,000 down to 22,000. They knocked it down from 22,000 down to 300 people. The math wasn't mathing. Do you know that with 32,000 people, the ratio would have been every one person, every one uh, person in Gideon's army would have to fight four people with 135,000 and 32,000. Every person in Gideon's army would have to fight four people with 32,000. But now at 300 people, every one person had to fight 450 people. That's 450 to one. There's no way they're winning this battle. I don't care about no person, no place, no thing. There is no way they're winning this battle. But family, this is what I want you to understand. It's when you're outnumbered. It's when you're overwhelmed. It's when you are so unable that God has you right where he wants you to get that glory up out of you. God said four to one is still too strong. I gotta drop them down to 450 to one. Because God, the word, family, the word of the Lord says that when God is in you, it's more than the world against you. This is what we have to understand about things. You don't need the things you think you need. You're not the person you used to be, so stop going to the places you used to go. 
because you don't need the things you think you need. There's a reason that Paul said, I boast in my weakness. Paul didn't say, I tolerate my weakness. Paul didn't say, I'm working on it. Paul said, I take pride in where I'm weak because it's in those places where I'm weak. It's in those places where I fall short. It's in those places where I don't add up. It's in my deficiency. God, it's in my inability to keep that bottle out of my hand on my own. God, it's in my inability to talk to my wife right. God, it's my inability to be the person you called me to be. That's where I'm going to look to you. That's where I'm gonna take my pride, not in my degree, not in where I worked hard, not in anything except for that which you provide when I'm standing in the need of your help. It's when you're on that mountainside overlooking an army that you can never fight. It's when you're standing in a doctor's office feeling weak in your knees at what they just told you about your life. It's when you get that phone call and find out where your wife's really been. That's where God wants you to work in you. That's where God wants you to work in you. Because you don't need the patience you think you need. You don't need the wisdom you think you need. You don't need the strength you think you need. All you need is that weakness, that empty cup, because God fills it. God fills it. Because his strength is made perfect in your weakness. What is your deficiency? Where are you falling short, family? Where are you thinking you're needing something that you don't have and you're mad at God about it? What's your 300? You're not the person you used to be. Stop going to the places you used to go because you don't need the things you think you need. God, we're grateful for your word and the power it provides for our lives. Illuminate us as we leave from this place. There's someone under the sound of my voice, God, who is hurting right now in this time and in this place, and they're in a place where they're hearing the word and they're not understanding how it can apply to their lives because there's no way they can face this on their own. God, step in now. Make your presence known now, in the name of Jesus, we call upon angels and the Holy Spirit to release into the life of that person who's struggling. God, your heart beats for that person. Father, I pray that you wrap your arms of love and support, the peace that passes understanding. God, bring it to them here in this place, in this time, to receive this message in a way that is truly transformative for them. God, that when they leave this door, if they walked in today, they're leaving a different person. We thank you, God. In your holy name, I pray. Amen and amen.